Hello listeners and welcome to We're Eagles Dear, a special eagle hotline where we remember the great Ian Kennedy. I'm Dave. And I'm Peter. And thank you for joining us as we remember an artist who contributed so much to the comic that has become the core of our podcast. It's very hard to deny his influence when he was every cover from the mid-photo strip days till now, effectively. It sets the tone. Absolutely. It's very telling that when Ian Kennedy joined the ranks of Eagle with the Dan Deere strip, it wasn't long before the Dan Deere strip became the cover feature. Mm. And I think that's testament to the impact of, of Ian's artwork and the effect of drawing the new reader, the returning reader in. Yes, it, it copied the format of the existing Eagles. We can thank presumably Barry Tomlinson for that nod back to the Eagles of past, but it can't be denied that the sheer epic scale of space battles and spaceships and spacescapes that Ian Kennedy turned in on a regular basis was instrumental in branding the new Eagle. So sadly, um, sadly, Ian passed away over the weekend. Uh, over the past few days, tributes have been coming in from all over the comics world. It's been very heartening to see and read. Legends and epithet that too often gets applied to high profilers these days, but it certainly befits Ian Kennedy's work, not only for his influential career and legions of fans, but also for his other great qualities. Very much praised in these past few days, his humility and his generosity. He was quite simply a gentleman of the old school, and in a world of illustrators no stranger to difficult or prickly talents, his was matched by a keen interest in people and a steadfast professionalism. So as we know, Kennedy contributed greatly to Eagle, but of course his range was broad in titles. He provided illustrations not just for DC Thompson and his native Dundee, but also for the pre-IPC publisher Knockout, and of course later IPC and Fleetway. It's interesting to, to see sort of the lines very clearly delineating his work, the, the, the world of war comics and the world of science fiction comics. If you ever needed a Misha Smith drawn, Ian was your man. <laughs> but apparently his great love was the hurricane. <laughs> oh, right, sorry. Remarkably, he produced over 1,600 covers for Commando. And of course, as has also been noted, he was contributing and still producing commissioned artwork right to the last a career that lasted over seven decades mm. and uh, one of his followers David Pugh who, who would follow him in the Dan Deere strip uh, commented uh, he himself felt like he'd burned himself out at 59 and Ian was still going at 89 remarkable and consistent mm. so consistent another tribute I think it was Mintonero that he peaked about 50 years ago and just continued <laughs> that peak ever since <laughs> which is something to, i can't claim to have peaked at anything <laughs> <laughs> only through my fingers yeah closer to the world of eagle of course some lovely tributes barry tomlinson tweeted he was a master artist who entertained so many people in the world of comics i was proud of his work appeared in my titles and proud to call him a friend and Dave Hunt, uh, editor of Eagles, said, self-effacing, extremely generous with his knowledge, hugely talented. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have known and worked with Ian Kennedy, a delightful human being. Dave, do you have any favourite Ian Kennedy pieces? My grail page will always be the uh, host of the planet guest. I think the greatest issue cover Eagle 73. But Ian's love was 
spaceships and the Firefly is always going to be a touchstone for my experiences of Dan Deere. Even now, if we look at the strips we're, we're currently reviewing, I mean, it's the Z99, but it's the Firefly. It's the Firefly, <laughs> yes. I will be forever kicking myself that when you and I went on the Great Derelict to talk about the world of Dan Deere, we never actually remembered to mention the Firefly in the great spaceships of, of Deere because mm. that was the Supreme, and it was purple. Mm. I, I've got to say, <laughs> Ian Kennedy's choice of colour was one of the feathers in his cap. He was quite capable of drawing everything straightforward in its camouflage motif or in, in its proper out-of-the-factory heraldry, but let him off his leash with his acrylics and he would come up with the most startling, contrasting colours. And each one of them just seemed to be bang on. We do talk a lot about Dan Deere, of course, and we must remember that uh, for 2000 AD, he did a couple of pretty good and memorable Judge Dredd strips. He also provided artwork for Star-Lord, for Warlord, and Battle. So his his brushes were everywhere. And by crikey, could you recognise his work? Absolutely. Most definitely. So as I say, uh, tributes flowing in. Trevor Baxendale, Henry Flint, Simon Fraser, Dave Gibbons, PJ Holding, David MacDonald from Hibernia Press, Ian McLaughlin, writer, Pat Mills, Michael Mulker, David Pugh, as mentioned before, David Roach, Neil Roberts, Lou Stringer, Chris Weston, and Arthur Wyatt, among many others. And many of them also remarking about how privileged they feel to have met Ian in the flesh. And fittingly, this tribute from DC Thompson, we were privileged to work with Ian for 73 years. A genuine, friendly, and kind man, he'll be missed by us all. Without a doubt, his legacy in the comics world will remain, and his work will continue to inspire and bring joy. For Commando, Ian was our squadron leader and our best pilot. We salute him. Lovely. He seemed like a gent. Yes, certainly I can attest to that, and my experience of that is, is courtesy of fellow Dundonian and a, a friend of Ian's for many years, Philip Vaughan, who was uh, gracious enough to work with me in interviewing Ian and Pat Mills last year online for the Lawless Convention, which, under COVID restrictions, was a virtual convention. A mixed blessing. I would never have been able to go to Lawless myself. So to have that very rare opportunity to connect with uh, not only a writer in Spain, but an artist in Dundee and conduct a three-way interview with two such lovely gentlemen was the highlight of the year. And so we present to you the audio version of the interview that Philip and I conducted with Pat and Ian from last year. With many thanks to Philip and Lawless for letting us share it with you. Yes, uh, thanks as ever to Philip and Sue and to Ian. Rest in peace and thank you for your talent, your generosity. And for making our childhood a much funner place. Indeed. Pat Mills is the creator and first editor of 2000 AD. He developed Judge Dredd and also created Action and co-created Battle Picture Weekly and Misty. He was the key writer on Crisis with his political thriller Third World War. He wrote the long-running, internationally acclaimed anti-war series Charlie's War, illustrated by Joe Cohoon. And in 1982, he wrote Dan Dare in The New Eagle, initially with John Wagner, before continuing to write his adventures solo until issue 83. He has just created Space Warp, a science fiction comic aimed at readers of all ages. Ian Kennedy started at DC Thompson in 1949 as a trainee illustrator 
1954 took the decision to leave and go freelance. Ian continues to work on cover art and private commissions to this present day, a career of 70 years and counting. Ian famously worked on creating thousands of covers for Commando, early issues of Star-Lord in 2000 AD, illustrated the Blake 7 comic strip, and in 1982 started work on Dan Dare in issue 19 of The New Eagle. Today, Pat and Ian join Peter Adamson, co-presenter of The New Eagle podcast, Where Eagles Dare, and Philip Vaughan, programme leader of the BA Honours in Concept and Comic Art at the Montford University. If I could open with a, a, a question just for um, for both of you, which is um, that the return of Dan Dare in Eagle uh, presented an opportunity to recast the character for a new generation of comic readers. I just wondered whether, um, of course, Pat, this was uh, your second opportunity after 2018. Um, where did you sort of come from with regards to your your ideas for, for how you would portray or or uh, tell Dan's story? Uh, John Wagner and myself had um, written a, a film treatment on Dan Dare for someone uh, who owned the, the film rights to it, uh, a guy called Tony Dalton. And um, so when New Eagle was um, uh, came into being, um, we thought that would be a good place to uh, use our, our storyline. And so it, it kind of kicked off with um, uh, John Wagner would write some episodes and I would write others and, and so forth. And that, I, I think that was the, um, I think it was Embleton who was um, uh, painting those episodes. Hmm. And it was made more complicated and this is why I to say it's messy, because um, the film rights had now, as I understand it, reverted to uh, Paul de Savory. And either th through his influence or perhaps someone else, um, they wanted to uh, change Dan, Dan Dare around a bit. And uh, the net upshot was that... Um, Rather than it being uh, the original Dan Dare, it would now be, um, I think, his son. And that was kind of, uh, John and I had no real uh, choice in the matter. That's, that's what we had to go with. Um, I had some reservations about that uh, because it, anything that makes the character seem, um, you, you know, more, more involved and more complicated, uh, it doesn't make it as instant uh, for the readers. But it was a problem, and we, and I think we had to overcome it, and we did. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and and Ian, of course, you you um, somewhat inherited the script, uh, the script from uh, from Jerry Embleton and Oliver Frey. Did you have any clear ideas going in uh, when you took on the artist responsibility? Well, I I was rather rather pitched it pitched into it, and uh, that uh, I. I uh, in the process of recovering from a, a car accident. Mm -hmm. So I was out of action for a wee while. And um, I don't know how it came about, but Barry, I think it was Barry Tomlinson who got in touch with me and uh, asked, uh, I think Dave Hunt was involved as well, if I remember rightly, uh, asked me if I would like to take Dan on. And um, I, of course, I jumped at it. Uh, I, I, I really really in off the deep end because um, 
the way the way that the character had been portrayed, his his uh, his clothing, etc., didn't seem to me to be space-like at all. It was almost almost medieval in a way. Some of the uh, clothes that he was portrayed in. Uh, so I, I just took it upon myself to to um, uh, revamp the whole thing. Uh, hopefully, it was fairly successful. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Pat, I understood to be uh, the original dance a grandson rather than son, but uh, that of course. No, you're meant, correct. Yeah. <laughs> that meant then I could I could really uh, get get rid of the uh, an awful lot of the old of the old dam. Uh, to be quite honest, I think I'm being rather uh, how could I put it bold when I say this. I was never terribly happy with the original Dam. He was, to me, he was almost puppet-like at times. I think possibly due to the fact that Frank did an awful lot of uh, copying from uh, uh, models, etc. Uh, people, people posing in the poses that he wanted. As a result, there was a there was a lack of movement, a lack of humanity in things. So I, I, I took the chance to try and inject a bit of that. So I held on to pretty well most of the, the original uh, facial features, uh, especially the chin. Uh, and then I just took it from there. That was it. Just let my imagination run wild. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Pat, if I could turn back to you with regards to the old, the older Dan Deere, I was wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on, on on whether you saw him as a bit of an establishment figure, uh, and, and if you did, whether that um, whether that was in contrast to to a lot of your two thousand AD characters, which I, I've tended to read as being quite anti-establishment. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that was a challenge. Um, just thinking about that. Well, first of all, um, I'm a huge fan of the original Dan Dare uh, by Frank Hampson, and, and Ian's right. There, there were there was that uh, uh, kind of stiffness, if you like, about it, and so on. But um, there was so much that worked, and and it had so much to offer. Yes. And I think what had happened on. With 2000 AD, we'd had this uh, uh, other really extreme version of Dan Dare, and and that had come about because I'd tried a conservative approach. I tried at least two artists, uh, one in Italy and one in Argentina, to try and get that original, uh, if you like, conservative look, and uh, it, it was boring. And I'd gone for the opposite. Uh, extreme um which worked um but although it worked that wasn't particularly apparent to me at the time because there was uh, if you like uh, an understandable backlash against it from what you might call um uh, traditional dandere fans who objected to it and I was very aware of that, and I didn't always pay enough attention to ordinary 2000 AD readers who actually really loved 
um, what Bellardinelli had done, uh, which was extreme. Um, so um, when it came to, to doing Dan Dare in New Eagle, um, I really wanted to stay in the tram lines of the original character. I felt that I had to do that because of all the uh, differing views on what had gone before. So I thought, okay, this time I'm going to put my, if you like, my anti-establishment uh, views to one <laughs> side, and I'm just going to do my very best to recreate Dan Dare the way the way he once was. So if you like, I, I put my put my perspective on a back burner, and I thought, right, I'm going to see this through a different pair of eyes. And I quite enjoyed the process. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. One, uh, I guess one one difference with the uh, the new crew for, for Dan and the new Eagle was um, quite a diverse supporting cast. You had Sugar and Zeta, or Helen Scott, as well as the resident tree. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the frustrations for me uh, uh, with uh, New Eagle is that almost uniquely in comics, it hasn't been collected. So normally, before an interview like this, I'd be looking through the, the, the various book editions. Yeah. As I see, you've got your, your copies of uh, Eagle there. And uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, it's all recollection. I, I don't have the opportunity to refresh. But I, I remember, yeah, I, we, you know, I put a certain amount of thought into the uh, background characters and so forth. And, um, what really um, drove me forward, and this was where it worked so well with Ian, um, was I thought, if Frank was around today, what would he do? What kind of story would he do today? And I figured it would be man's first journey to the stars. That, that would be the one he would do. And I thought, well, um, again, Frank was drawing on the, the technology and the science at the time. I think he visited uh, the, the, um, the V rocket uh, sites in Holland as it, when he was in the war or things like that. So he was very much reflecting that kind of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that sort of uh, festival of Britain optimism for the future. And, and so I thought, okay, I'll do something similar. And so I drew on um, um, you know, the, the, the sort of various NASA programs and so on. And it, it, it was, I was very, very, very lucky to have Ian to draw, draw that because Ian, as we all know, has this great feeling for hardware uh, and, and can bring all these things to life. Um, any other artist would have, would have told me to get knotted. <laughs> so thank you, Ian, for drawing all those incredibly um, complex ideas uh, those NASA ideas that I was recreating for um, Man's First Journey to the Stars, I think. 
Yeah, I was going to ask that question, Pat. Did did you actually alter the course of the story to play up to, to Ian's strengths? Or were you always going to go in that direction? Or were you reacting to Ian taking over when he took over issue 19 and, and realised that, that obviously because of his, his background and uh, doing all the, the airships and, and, and aeroplanes, that that, that that would be a good direction to take the, the strip in? Yeah, I, 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 it was it was a given, really, wasn't it? That uh, um, you always play to an artist's strengths and to have that opportunity. Um, again, I, I wouldn't know with absolute certainty unless I was leafing through the, the original episodes. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, as I say, it's, a, it's frustrating that, that uh, Dan Dare of... of all Britain's comic book characters hasn't been collected. Um, and, but I, f- from memory, I'm thinking to myself, my God, that was a bit of a uh, risky thing to do, to have a story that was really following this rather um, uh, scientific basis for things. You know, in other words, how would it work? Um, I use, uh, I should say, for inspiration on that, um, uh, the book uh, The Right Stuff, which was the, the first step into space. Um, and there was some great material in there which kind of inspired me to do something uh, similar. But nevertheless, um, there was no Mekon. Uh, there was none of the. I mean, that came later with Ian and I. But at this point, you've got very much a kind of... Um, uh, almost Patrick Moore type uh, story about uh, going into space. And obviously I must have found enough conflict to make it work. But, you know, this Saturday morning I'm thinking, my God, did I really do that? That was a bit, <laughs> that was a bit risky. But it, it worked. And, and even that surprises me. And obviously it's down to the quality of... Um, uh, of Ian's artwork, and also I think the the diligence that I put into the story to get it right. Um, but if it hadn't had worked, that's one of the things with with comics is you would soon hear about it from the editor. He would be very quick to tell you the readers hate this. Get rid of it. So yeah. I know it worked, but I'm yeah. still scratching my head as we speak. I think I think I think that uh, uh, to interrupt. Um, I think at that time uh, we were we were going through almost the, the threshold the threshold of of space exploration, real real yeah and out in space if you get me on the moon, uh, all the various NASA projects etc. And I I have a feeling just sitting listening to you here, uh, we were almost like a couple of sheets of blotting paper. And we were soaking all this up, you as the writer and me as the artist. Uh, we were soaking it up, and and that's that's just how it came out in 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 our attempts to to portray the portray, portray the situation. And it just so happened it was Dan Dare, <laughs> almost accidentally. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think. Um, I think readers at that time, um, young readers, uh, were fascinated by the whole uh, business of space. I think uh, that's possibly not 
quite the same today, where you know there there, there isn't the immediacy, the excitement that perhaps there once was. So you're right. I think we were riding on that excitement, which is hard to imagine today. Because you think, okay, I mean, it's still it's still of interest, but it doesn't make um, headlines in the way that perhaps it once did. Mm-hmm. Much more matter of fact, matter of fact nowadays. It's a, it's taken for granted, so to speak. Now, if I could go on about the the, the script, um, uh, I'll spare, try and spare Pat's blushes, but. Uh, the scripts that I got to work on, uh, I, they just they just sparked me off immediately. I had no absolutely no trouble at all in in, in imagining exactly what he wanted, and I'm pretty sure I, uh, I perhaps didn't give you at times, but just exactly what you what you envisaged. But um, it, it, it I got enough from them to to well, it, it really it really did spark me off, and uh, having been uh, a frustrated pilot myself. I I didn't want to do this as a as a career. I wanted to fly with the boys in blue. Uh, it was ear trouble. That was it. End of story. But I have an abiding uh, uh, interest in anything aeronautical, uh, and I just love painting and drawing aeroplanes. And um, of course, uh, the the the. the the machines that I devised in in the Dandier situations uh, were very much uh, uh, based on the, the current designs of of aircraft at that time, uh, and I just I just added bits and pieces here and there, um, and I one of the best uh, uh, compliments I ever had from a from a fan was that when Ian does devise a spaceship, it looks as though it's going to work. Um, and that I, that was as pretty pretty much as high a compliment as one could get in that. Lovely. Um, uh, Pat and Ian, I, I, at that time, uh, you also had a, a, a third contributor for a few issues in, in the, the photos of uh, Julian Baum. Oh, he yes. provided some, he he provided some model photos for the uh, for the space uh, cadet stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you you're probably aware that uh, I think Julian is um, I think he's um, a professor at uh, uh, Liverpool Observatory now or something like that, and I think he was on his way. Uh, you know, up the ladder at this point. And he was making these incredible models and so forth. And again, I, I'm, I'm scratching my head as we speak and thinking, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, um, you, know, you know, I'd almost have to have a look at the, the, the original pages and think, okay. But I, I remember he had this kind of real... Um, uh, you know, as I say, he's really into space and so on. He's a, uh, I think he's an astronomer and so forth. And I think I wanted to bring that energy um, into the story. And, and perhaps, again, I was thinking of um, the original Dan Dare, where they often use models and things like that. And I suppose it was like, maybe this is a way to, to help recreate that original flavor 
um, of the story. Um, so, so that was the plan. I wonder whether it might have been introduced as well um, to, to help you out on the deadline issue because I was amazed that I was amazed that you were able to produce two, then three, then four pages of painted comic art uh, every week. So I, I wonder whether there might have been an element of that in there. Yes, well, certainly it was a. <laughs> we started off as part nose, it was a, a covered center spread, uh, and then they decided that it would go on front cover, uh, which did increase the workload support. And then it was decided to go on back cover as well. Uh, of course, at that point, it was obvious that there was no way I could keep that uh, rate up without ending up in a loony bin somewhere. <laughs> so uh, if what we ended up was I, I did this, the, the cover, full cover, the centre spread black and white, and the, cover, and the back cover black and white. And it, uh, these were uh, coloured by John Burns. Did a smashing job, by the way. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it just took off like Topsy, I suppose, Topsy had grown. Yeah, that wasn't at all the issues, though. That was just on a, on a few issues. Uh, I know that it reverted back to you when you had the time to fully paint it. And if he did a very good job of recreating your colour palettes, but you can, you can tell the difference, at least I can tell the difference between the two. But he did a very good job of, of matching up, um, I understand. And, and you're, you're, you're right, Phil, uh, that uh, it's come back to me now. Of course, that was another reason that we um, uh, used Julian on those kind of model sequences. Uh, because it gave Ian more time. And uh, I mean, it's amazing the, the kind of um, makeshift rules that we, we operate by in comics, that we have to do things like that to keep the, keep the character in the comic. But it, it made sense. Uh, we had to do it. Mm -hmm. Needs must when the devil drives, so to speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. very much. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I suppose being... Being up in Dundee, uh, I, I was somewhat uh, divorced from all that, that uh, uh, the, the politicking and, and the arranging of this that sort of thing. So I, I really wasn't aware part of just how much was having to, you know, to be uh, done to arrange, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it is the challenge of, of a weekly comic that you've, got to keep doing you've got to keep it out there and then how do you achieve that and you've got to make compromises and and i think the, the great thing is that uh um as far as i'm aware um the, the readers were very tolerant and very positive about that they're not always that tolerant and positive so i i'm i'm feeling quite relieved about it as I, i'm thinking back and thinking <laughs> my god we got away with that <laughs> yeah yeah I, 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 I'm a wee bit puzzled myself, like you, uh, that uh, our dad didn't take off to the same extent as, well, uh, Doctor Who, of course, is something yeah. altogether. But we, we haven't even approached uh, that sort of situation with Dad. It just, he's, just, he's just died a natural, hasn't he, somewhere or other? 
And I wonder if that's something to do with the, the fact that it has lain dormant and uh, not been reprinted for, for so long that, that there could be a whole new audience out there for, for this work and they're not able to access it. I mean, even the creators are struggling to access the content, which tells you something, uh, you know, which is a real shame because I think it, I think it stands up. I think it stands up to scrutiny. Yes, I, I don't. I, I, the move back to letterpress didn't help any either, did it? Oh my God! Yeah, later. Yeah, I think. Um, I think by that point, I think I'd exited stage left. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean that's always that's always one of these uh, challenges on, on comics, where uh, especially in that era, there. You know, the, the, the comic isn't making enough money for them. Uh, mm. So what do you do? You go in for cheaper printing. Um, I would imagine that there must have been some uh, some fallout over that from the readers. And, and understandably so. But, um, I mean, all of us as, as, you know, as creators and fans of Dan Dare, we, we all want the very, very best. Um, publishers saw it a little more with a bit more cold blood you know they they didn't have quite the same enthusiasm shall we say that, that we all have uh-huh. i wonders perhaps if they had uh, instead of weekly could they have done it fortnightly or even a monthly and made a really good job of it uh, oh. I don't, would, that have, <laughs> would that have crossed their mind i don't know <laughs> uh- yeah, I I think I think their perspective was probably that the readers expected Dan there in there every week. So if yeah. it if it dropped out or if the the um, the, the circulation you know things changed. Mm. So I, I remember another thing that uh, um, that I did, and we might come on to that later, perhaps. Um, and this again was was partly influenced by wanting to to link together um, the original Dan Dare with the Dan Dare we had today. In other words, uh, you know, forget forget the whole 2000 AD thing. I, I really wanted to go down that kind of conservative path. So uh, my recollection is that um, I got in touch with um, an original Dan Dare fan called Alan Vince, and I think he supplied me with um, some material uh, and I try, and I think I may have featured it in the story in the orig- with the original art, or it may have been redrawn. I'm not sure, but I have a feeling it was the former. And it, it was to try and bind the two uh, the two versions of Dan Dare more closely together, um, which I, I, I almost saw as a kind of penance for my my sort of uh, 2000 AD Dan Dare. Um, <laughs> But I think it may also have been used for um, uh, for time purposes as well. It, it may have saved time. This is obviously moving ahead to after uh, Dan has made this uh, first trip to the stars. Then you've got the uh, we go back to the Mekon. Uh, and it was somewhere in there that I really wanted to uh, um, give a new look to Frank Hansen's original Voyage to Venus, which I thought was fantastic. And I, I wanted to kind of make it um, appealing to, um, to a new generation, if you like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
it was a hard act to follow. Uh, <laughs> I can remember when the first uh, first uh, copy of Eagle came out back in when was it? Was it fifty fifty one something around about then? Yeah, uh, it was nothing short of revolution. Yeah, and uh, it deserved its huge and success. To, yes, and to try to follow it, um, even at a much later date, was a, 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 a monumental job, really, to try and follow that. Um, I thought perhaps, the, being a different generation, i.e. as I thought his grandson, but you thought perhaps son. Um, no, I think you're right. Might, this is might have helped. It might have helped. Um, and I, I thought between us, we I don't think we did too bad a job. Right. Um, but I think when we also being overtaken by uh, uh, IT technology, all that sort of thing, the children were just not reading. Going back to, to Pat's point, I just, just want to pick up on something that Pat said, is that I do remember that they did feature a couple of episodes of uh, reprinting the Frank Hampson stuff, and then they asked Ian to reinterpret some of the Frank Hampson pages. Uh, around about a segment which was called The Dare Report, where it looked back on the origin or the new origin of the original Dan Dare. Which, and this is where it starts to get really complicated, because Pat, you'll maybe be able to fill in the blanks here, but he was actually meant to be an RAF pilot from the 1950s who'd gone forward in time and retconned pretty much the whole of the original Dan Dare series in the process. Now, I'm pretty sure that was something to do with this film a pitch. Yeah, it was. And um, I hadn't brought that up, but it was in the back of my mind. Because, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, that was, no, 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 I think it's important to mention it. It's... Uh, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things about uh, good comic book characters like Dan Dare is they can stand and survive a lot of battering. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if, if he wasn't a good character to begin with, he couldn't have stood. Because the, I, I can see the kind of logic behind why the filmmakers might have wanted to have done that, because they wanted to acknowledge... Um, that, that glory of the RAF and, and Battle of Britain and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's a misguided idea, clearly. And, and I think, you know, when you look at the, the 1951 um, Dan Dare, Voyage to Venus, I mean, it, it's got that kind of British triumphalism about it. It, it. it exudes Festival of Britain or whatever was going on at the time. I mean, this is a Britain that um, I kind of enjoyed... Uh, is sort of capturing elements of that, uh, which I'll go on to in a moment, because but it's just to set the scene. I mean, the uniforms and everything, they, they look so British, and yet they were green. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, as an aside, uh, you doubtless know that there were variants uh, before that one went ahead. I think there was possibly a different colour and there was a different role for, for Dan Dare before he became uh, the, the, the one that Hanson went with. But I, I tried to continue with that triumphalism, which I kind of enjoyed, where I think the, the head of, um, I've forgotten his exact title, I think he was certainly a knight of some sort, and he was British. So the, the head of Space Command, you know, was well, not that, American. He was British. 
That was Sir Hubert, wasn't it? Sir Hubert. Sir Hubert Guest. Yes. With his pipe. Sir, Sir Hubert Guest was the original, but I reenacted that uh, in the Mekon adventure. Ah, well, yeah. I can't remember. Uh, uh-huh. He was nicknamed the Fox, I remember. Yes, yes, he was. The Space Fox. Yeah, the Space Fox. <laughs> right. He, he was, he was, uh, it was the idea that the head of this whole usually American uh, space command, you know, that would be the normal perception. But here in, the, in this alternative reality, uh, Britain was still very much at the forefront. And I, I quite enjoyed uh, having that character. Uh-huh. It's certainly been an idea that's been revisited a few times since um, with the, the Ministry of Space and, and, other, um, and other enterprises. So you may have been ahead of the game there. Well, I think Ministry of Space, the, uh, I gather the story is not always, doesn't always live up to the, the image on the front cover. But the front cover is fantastic. Ministry of Space, that's really gone back uh, almost before uh, well, my impression is, is uh, covered by Chris Weston, and it, it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, uh, but it almost feels pre uh, 1951, you know, about 1948 or something. And uh, there really is, um, I think there's a, a there's a kind of energy about that that time that you know perhaps perhaps we baby boomers were trying to trying to catch her. Uh, um, you know, it's a very positive side of Britain, um, which doesn't happen very often, especially in the miserable era we live in at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, in, a, in, another, in another universe, I, I would have loved to have done something like that, to have gone back to that really early uh, period. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, all we can do really often is do the best we can and make things work in this very demanding uh, medium where, you know, the episodes are rolling by. You've got only a few weeks to get something out. There's, there's limited numbers of pages and so on. Um, it, it, it can be very challenging. And I actually find I'm getting more aesthetic and more purist as I get older which isn't a very good thing, you know, because, uh, you know, comics still today, they still have that kind of McDonald's element of, you know, get it out there, knock it out. And uh, I, I'm not quite so comfortable with, with doing that as I, as I once was. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of burn rate, I suppose, of, of episodes must have, been, must have been a real challenge. And, and that compressed time, I mean, originally two pages to fit in, that amount of of uh, of story and artwork is an incredible challenge. I, I I don't know how it actually worked, but but it did work, and I think um, it, it's very rare to see that. Even in in two thousand AD at the time, the, the the stories were five six pages, uh, so they, they had a bit more room to breathe. Whereas you've got this huge compression on storytelling, and I suppose in a way, Ian, you were used to that having worked for DC Thompsons, where they would have you know nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Um, pa- um, frames on a page sometimes, um, which which compared to say two thousand AD, and I know Pat, you you instigated a lot of this, where the pages were much more like American comics, where they had less panels and there was more impact. So um, I suppose you know when they added the front cover element, which again was harking back to the original Eagle, uh, was interesting. It just gave the strip a little bit more room to breathe. 
Yeah, yeah. I, the the other thing, of course, is um, when when the when you only have say two pages, um, you really go for the jugular on it, and therefore you it really help, helps you focus your mind. You're thinking, what's going to have an impact with the readers? And so um, anything that's maybe not so important gets pushed to one side, and you really make it work. And of course, there's there's a long tradition of this. I mean, there are um, uh, long before my era. I suppose things like Flash Gordon and so on were probably one page or something like that. So um, I, I can I can see the, the 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 potential in it. It's almost like a almost like a newspaper strip, which is you know people will follow that was it every day, I suppose. And uh, but you know they're they're quite short and yet they still draw you in and you still have followers so although it sounds um uh, quite brutal in a way just being too paid there is an upside to it there's no dross in those those there's no oh that was a boring episode it's all got to be good ian those front covers um afforded you to to provide some utterly panoramic images um on our podcast um we uh, we recently did a a survey of of the um, uh, the offset era of of New Eagle and one of your covers, which is actually behind me, came up as uh, one of the the, the listeners' favourites, uh -huh. uh, which was <laughs> um, was it what was alongside the challenge was there a, an element of sort of um, freedom in, in having that space to work with as well. Uh, do you have? Did you see you have it behind you somewhere? That cover. It is. Oh, uh, this one. Oh yes, these 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 uh, these front covers. Um, uh, how can oh, I put this? Yes, I can just I can just Up see a little it. bit. I know yep. what we're on about. These these rather composite composite covers, I would call them, so to speak. Yes, oh, that's oh, yeah. Um, uh, it was it was generally the the opening obviously the opening uh, shot of that particular uh, episode and um, uh, oh, that's beautiful very very fortunately that uh, would give me a chance to get going doing something like this because he knew exactly that getting getting catching the the, the, the reader's eye on the on the newsstand uh, is is well, exactly what you want to do. Yeah. Um, uh, so, of course, if you could uh, put in as much interest and colour, of course, colour is something that um, I, I suppose I have. It's an instinctive thing. It's innate. I have this sense of colour, uh, not only uh, colour against colour, but talking about colour temperatures, etc., where you, you have, a, say, a warm colour on, on the object itself. Well, you want to back it up with, say, a cool colour, thereby, thereby getting contrast that way as well. So uh, I really did enjoy these um, uh, these eagle covers very much. So, um, well, I'm, I, I'm looking at them now for the first time in probably quite a few years, uh -huh. uh, the, the one, the couple that Phil held up, and I can see why. Well, I can see, first of all, why it was so popular, because it's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are um, wonderful scenes. I mean, that that's very much one of those NASA type scenes, if I recall, with you know, with the whole solar. You know, I can remember reading all these articles on how it would work and blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, what I can also see is um, the amount of time it must have taken you to have you know, to have produced that kind of artwork. Um, I think it's, I think generally speaking, two pages a week of that quality is about all most artists, including yourself, can manage. Is that right? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Uh, a cover like that uh, would probably, would probably take me a couple of days. Um, although I, I was very fortunate in that uh, when I started doing colour work seriously, uh, it was probably with commando colours in, in Thompson's. About the same time, the acrylic paints came on the market. And uh, I've always been a person, uh, when something new in the way of uh, uh, equipment comes on, them, I, I love to try them out, experiment, etc. So uh, when they came on the market, um, of course I did give them a good old try. I found that they could be very time consuming if you used them in pasto, if you see what I mean, uh, like a, an oil painting. Uh, but, uh, so I devised very much during the time I did Dan Deere, I devised uh, what I call my kiddies coloring book technique in that I would do black and white, uh, ink, black and white ink sketch and then colour it in, just like in each colouring book. But then, by taking the acrylic paints and watering them right down till they were just like watercolours, I could then just relax the colour on top of this black and white um, sketch. And if it needed a bit more, I could put a bit more on it until I got the depths I wanted. So it, it became quite a quite a, a fast technique, shall we say. Cutting, cutting it down, cutting the time for a cover like that down by probably, when I think on it, about 50%. So when I started off doing colours, uh, covers uh, initially, it would maybe take me two and a half days, something like that. I got it right down to one and a half to two days. And that made a heck of a difference to the week. That's still incredibly fast, to be fair. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, teaching comics and, and, and in the digital space now, where, where most of the creators work, um, there's certain shortcuts you can take to colour, and you've got Photoshop and you've got other programs where you can capture colours. And but but you're mixing this up, and I know from personal experience of working with acrylics, um, whilst it is a, a good medium to use it's still quite tricky to get exactly how you want it. And I suppose sometimes you might have had a happy accident in, in when you're mixing up colours or how it sits on a page. Um, but it's by no means easy. I, I can't, even the, even the, the getting it down to, even the two and a half days seems quick to me, to be fair. Uh. <laughs> Listen, I hope you're not going to ask me to admit to happy accidents. They happen all the time. <laughs> um, uh, as I say, uh, this business of being able to wash over more colour. So, for instance, if I put a, a, a shade of green down in an area and I decided 
as I went on over the whole picture, that that shade of green was rather too cool. Then I would just take a wee wash of red, very thin wash of red, wash it over the top of that green, which you can't do with acrylics. You can't do that with watercolours, where they go muddy. All that happens with acrylics is they become even more vibrant. And the one, the one really tremendous advantage is that they, they reproduce so well, thereby giving us that will know as uh, seeing these spreads in Indigo, just how well they came up. It, it boggles my mind that this is all pre-digital as well, because uh, modern artists have so much more option mm -hmm. to work with to manipulate those images. Uh, certainly the colour leaps off the page. Yes, yes. Huh? Yes, Phil, Phil and I have discussed this uh, situation <laughs> often enough. Uh, and uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, uh, computer graphics, uh, the colour, it's, it's definitely improving. They're, they're much more able to, to grade the colour, uh, change colours, etc., than they used to. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that someday on the computer, uh, you'll be able to feed your stuff into the computer and there'll be a little button, bottom right, which will have uh, AL. And you press that, and that is artist's license. <laughs> artist. we're, all, we're all waiting on that, Ian. We're all waiting on that. Inject <laughs> that into your computer graphic. Uh, is it my, under, it's my understanding, and I, I don't know if this is correct, um, are Titan Books um, reprinting the new eagle down there at some unspecified point in the future is they, they are reprinting the originals and they've been doing the series for quite a while now the original dan dares i think a, a few, about three years ago they brought out a new dan dare comic but that kind of that that kind of stopped midstream um but they did promise at that time that they'd eventually get to the new eagle um dan dares and reprint those as, as the next part of the collection um, but everything's a bit up in the air at the moment with that, I think. And the fact that that new version of Dan Deere didn't continue. And, um, you know, I'm not quite sure what the status of that is. But obviously, they have a relationship with the Dan Deere Corporation. And they've obviously licensed the, the original book. So there's no reason why they couldn't negotiate to do this run. You know, uh, although I think, again, actually, there is going to be a cost involved in cleaning up the the scans from the, the original comics and then how you deal with the double page spreads in a in a collection. However, I, I seem to remember that the 2000 AD, the Rebellion reprints of the Dan Dare from 2000 AD dealt quite well with the double page spreads by making the middle bleed a bit wider so that when you open the page up, it kind of still goes, scans across. It, it's, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it's going to take a lot longer before um, the, the new eagle Dan Dare comes out because, um, yeah, it does feel a bit woolly, the, the schedule. Um, and, and that's sad because, um, yeah, I think we, we all want to see it. And after seeing those copies you held up, uh, Phil, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I, I just can't wait to see this, this beautiful collection. Um, well, 
you know, ho hopefully it will happen. There is a small matter of a few episodes which were uh, rendered in, in the letterpress. Now, there's a thing you see, I, I, I mean, Peter, we've had this discussion already, to be fair, but, but, but there's, a, there's an opportunity for, for whoever reprints it is to, to commission Ian to, to, to paint those, those final pages, you know, those, those final five episodes. I wouldn't mind in the least. <laughs> well, you heard oh, it right. first. <laughs> oh, what, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. It's, ah. Oh. Yes, I'm always available, shall I say. Well, that, that's, that's fantastic to know, Ian. That is really fantastic to know. And uh, uh, I, I really hope there are, you know, I mean, what it needs really where Dan Dare is concerned, and I'm not putting myself forward for this, it needs a mover <laughs> and shaker to make it happen. Yes. Uh, well, probably I, a fairly thankless task, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it needs someone to really get behind it. And I think that often happens with, um, with great comics and great characters is everyone loves it, but it needs someone to get behind it and say, okay, this, this is going to happen. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it would not be an easy task, but I hope if anyone's out there is watching is thinking, yeah, that could be me, you know, who knows? It, it just needs a bit of energy behind it to, to, um, to yeah. nag everyone concerned and say, do it. The interest is out there because yeah. I, I personally, I'm uh, quite often, quite frequently doing a little commission for, for a private uh, member of the public of Dan Deere, the Mekong, or whatever, uh, for them to hang on their studio wall or whatever. So the interest is out there. If someone yeah. is uh, some, uh, how can we, uh, beneficially minded millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I say, I, it, I, I, it's, it's surprising actually that um, Dan Deere Corporation you know, themselves aren't um, aren't doing anything. It, it can be sometimes that people just get lost in the in the detail of who owns what and where it is and and things like that. But I mean, there is there is so much uh, enthusiasm and love um, for the uh, uh, New Eagle uh, uh, series. Occasionally, I um, will tweet about it, and I'm sure. And after this. I will, will mention it, and, and I'm sure there'll be, you know, lots and lots of comments from, um, uh, you know, readers of your generation saying, yeah, when's it coming out, you know, and so on. <laughs> that's right, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm constantly amazed. If one had told me, say, 10, 15 years ago, um, I would have tended to have poo-pooed it because I thought, really, uh, everything's, it was all on the slide, it was all on the way out, uh, but uh, I'm constantly amazed at just how much interest there is out there. I don't, uh, Peter, you might tell me about how how things are in New Zealand, for instance, uh, with regard to <laughs> the industry. How how much how much headway do we make out there? Uh, we're doing our little best, Ian. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> But that is an interesting point, though, Peter, because, you know, how I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I've just put it out there is that how did how did the, all, all these British comics kind of 
kind of land in, in, in New Zealand at the time and, and was there a fan base and were they distributed in the same way that they were in the UK? Uh, probably not, uh, Philip. Um, uh, the general rule of thumb, which my co-host David and I have, have agreed on, was that uh, comics arrived three months late in New Zealand um, pretty regularly through your local newsagent. Um, I wasn't aware of any clubs uh, and, um, and we never got the giveaways. It was nice to have your country's name on the cover, <laughs> whether it was in Galactic Groups or, or since. <laughs> yes. uh, no, I, I have uh, a correspondent who lives in Vienna, and he sent me a, one of these little memory sticks, uh, uh, absolutely full of, of uh, material done by um, uh, artists out in East Europe, uh, very similar to the sort of stuff we do. And I just wondered, surely it's gone further than just Eastern Europe. There must be something out there towards uh, Southeast Asia and, and uh, Australia and New Zealand, some sort of movement, perhaps. It was always uh, Australia, Malaysia and Ireland were, were listed on the, uh, on the cover as other prices, but it obviously went beyond that, I think. One of the lovely things about the, uh, the the New Eagle is that it did have a facility where readers could send in a sort of a passport photo of themselves and, and where they were from. And, and you would get uh, readers from um, uh, African countries. Uh, I think Papua New Guinea may have turned up uh, and uh, around the Pacific as well. There we are, the lucky six. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that, that gave you some indication of, of the, the coverage. I think they were pretty good days. Yes, yes. I know, Ian, you do get commissions from, uh, you know, I know you've done a commission for someone in New Zealand and Australia and all over the world, I suppose. That, and, and that is the, the, the great thing about digital now is that it does open up uh, the communication channels where, where back in the day it was just a letter, you know, in the post. And, and even the feedback for, on the strips was done with the cut-out coupons, which, of course, I would, I would never do, you know, never cut up either the prog or, or the new eagle to fill out the forms. But but they were vitally important, weren't they, Pat? That 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 feedback that you got directly from the, the readers. Oh yeah. Huge hugely so. Um and um yeah if you would you would count up the votes from um uh you know in other words the readers would vote for say this was my favorite story, this was a story I didn't like so much or I hated or whatever. And um, you would, you would, we have these kind of graphs where we would follow the success of the story. And I think it was a really, really good method um, because uh, it was really responding to the reader very, very quickly. So um, on occasion, I, I might um, write a particular story and the editor would say, uh, that episode went down really well. So can you give it more of that? So you you would actually be changing the story or tweaking the story a bit to respond to what readers wanted. And similarly, if for some reason the readers didn't like it, uh, you would you know you'd almost kill it off in in uh, in mid serial. I mean, it sounds very brutal, but it worked. There was none of this. Um, what should we say, the, the, this feeling of, well, do readers really like it or not? The, the, the creators had to respond to the readers. And that's mm -hmm. very different, I think, to um, 
a comic medium maybe elsewhere. For example, in France, the creator produces something and he finds an audience and but he's primarily producing, or at least the uh, the artists I've spoken to, they're, they're producing for themselves mm -hmm. uh, and then finding an audience. Whereas we as creators, we're, we're really responding to the readers. And I think that that really sharpened us up. We, we knew you know, we knew exactly what uh, what readers wanted. Uh, they wanted action and they wanted excitement, but they also wanted subtext as well. I mean, to just if you just had a story with just lots of space battles with no subtext, no soul to it, um, it's unlikely that it would have uh, stayed the course. So, yeah, the, the reader polls were really important. And I think there came a point on 2000 AD, at least, where they were often in conflict with um, uh, with what fans were saying. So fans tended to like, uh, shall we say, the, the, the more sophisticated stories, the stories where the, the writer or the artist had a fan following. And that could often be very different to the voting coupons. Um, so the 2000 AD solution was, well, we just do away with the voting coupons. You know, in other words, <laughs> you've lost your right to vote. <laughs> That's a little simplistic, but it's not far off the truth, believe me. I think on Eagle, you didn't have that conflict uh, between uh, some readers of what I would call, you know, ordinary readers and really dedicated hardcore fans. And it could be quite divisive uh, on 2000 AD. It definitely was. But I think I think you were spared all that on, on Eagle. So that's good. Who needs it? <laughs> Did you ever get any feedback direct from the readers, Ian, at the time? Or was it all coming through editorial for you? I think I didn't really get much feedback from readers at all. It's only latterly, uh, as time has gone on, that... Uh, the comments have come through. Yeah, I mean, that's something that um, I've only recently discovered, uh, got the picture of on 2000 AD, is that um, you, you're very much writing and painting in a bit of a bubble. And the, the only information coming through to you is, is the editor, through the editor. Now, in the case of Eagle, that was fine because the editor was was Dave Hunt, and I will always sing his praises because he was a damn good editor. He'd been the editor on Battle before. Here, here. And when information was coming through him, uh, it was it was true. You know, it, it was valid. That wasn't always uh, the case on 2000 AD. So I've only discovered, for example, probably in the last five or so years how popular certain artists were, mm -hmm. um, like Ballardinelli um, and various other foreign artists. Um, at the time, I was more or less told um, that they didn't, that their stories didn't work. And Rebellion, to their credit, have really changed that by reprinting some of those artists. Yeah. Um, and I, I was quite surprised, uh, you know, that, uh, as I say, for example, uh, Balladinelli's Dan Dare um, actually has a, a, a really strong um, uh, following. You know, a lot, a lot of readers love it. Um, but that wasn't the information I was getting at the time. Um, and, um, yeah, so as a, 
you know, I'm still learning what, what the audience actually liked. As I say, on, on Eagle, um, it was different. I think it was much more clear cut what they liked, what they didn't like, which is great. Uh -huh. Yes, yes, I, I agree with you vis-a-vis uh, -vis Dear Fond, uh, yeah. an excellent man to work with at all times. Um, we, we built up quite a, a relationship over the years. Uh, he would just uh, phone up and say, can, can I take such and such on? And of course I would, uh, I, very luckily, I have a, a fair sense of timing and just how much I'm going to manage to do in the next couple of weeks, three weeks, months time. Um, and he, he once commented that uh, he reckoned that uh, when he phoned me up, I would have my diary on the desk uh, and I would be able to say, yes, Dave, I can do this, but I can't do that. Um, uh, and I said, no, Dave, I'm afraid it's just sheer instinct. And <laughs> much prefer to tell you now, I'm not going to be able to make it. Rather than take it on and let you down. Uh, and because of that, we did build up a very, a very, a friendly, as well as professional relationship. No, he 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 was a uh, a great great editor, uh, and that makes such a difference to us. Yes. As as creators, if if the editor, what shall we say, doesn't know what they're doing or isn't uh, completely professional and so on, then you are in not in a good space. Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. So the good editors really do need recognizing. Mm. Look, Phil. Um, and gentlemen, I think I think we covered pretty much everything, except just to say, um, if I might poach one of your questions, Philip. Uh, Pat, you mentioned earlier about a sense of having having paid your penance on Dare when it came to the end of your time. Um, you did leave a few tantalising clues as to where the strip might go. Um, I believe uh, there was a threat of uh, Dan and his crew taking the fight to Venus. Do you recall leaving the strip with a sense of satisfaction? And yeah. that sort of Yes, that was that was very much it. it, it I felt um, I had to sort of do my particular bit to bring it back as far as I could to its former glory. And, uh, and I think it was also to do with uh, the fact that I was starting to recognize, well, if you're going to revive a character, e even if it even if it's successful, like say Ballardinelli's version, um, that, you know, there is that respect needed to the original version. Um, and, I, and I felt that I had, um, um, I, I'd missed out there, that I hadn't got that right. And so I needed to come back to it and, and it, and it was not only that, it was also because, um, you, you know, after the Ballard and Ellie, there was, a, there was another version uh, with Dave Gibbons, which was fine. And then it seemed to go off uh, in some other strange directions and so on. It, this is in 2000 AD. And so it's really like, yeah, we've, we've really got to get this right this time. And, and once that had been achieved, there was a sense of satisfaction of, of integrating the two uh, universes back into one, if you like, and saying, right, that's it. <laughs> time, time to leave, <laughs> time to go. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks, everyone. That, that was great. Thanks. And thank you, Ian. Rest in peace, Ian.